Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Have you ever been at a crowded and noisy party and you heard a conversation across the room? You catch pieces of it. You know it's interesting, but you can't quite make it out. And you can't quite push your way over to that side of the room and be a part of it. Well, that was a situation a lot of our guests found themselves in a few weeks ago. And this podcast is going to set things right. You see, 500 Startups and Disrupting Japan held a joint event last month that focused on how Japanese and foreign staff can best work together at startups. As part of that event, we gathered together three startup founders who are leading multicultural teams, and they shared their candid stories and advice about what they've learned over the years. And they even told us some of their biggest mistakes. It was a great discussion, and the event was a huge success, and we'll definitely be doing it again very soon. But in a way, the event was. Too successful. Way more people showed up than we expected, and the place was packed. Everyone had a good time, but the room was so packed and so noisy that only the people close to the front got a chance to hear some amazingly good advice and real life experiences. Well, in this special in between episode of Disrupting Japan, we're going to fix that for you. If you were in the back, or you couldn't make it out to the event, or if you don't even live in Tokyo, we've got you covered. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with three experts on how startups can recruit, retain, and get the very best out of multilingual and multicultural staff. So let's get right to the discussion. Thanks so much.、Um, Before we get started, actually, let, let me just get all the panelists to join me up here on stage, and I'll introduce you all in a moment. Come on up. And to all of those you, you in the back, I know it's kind of far from the stage, but believe me, you're going to want to listen to this.、Um, at some point during this discussion, you're going to hear the one piece of information you came here for.、Um, it's going to be the one thing that'll help you, that'll really make a click. About how to get Japanese and foreign staff working together. Now, I don't know which one of these three is going to say that. I don't know what it's going to be, but I guarantee it's going to happen. So I know it's crowded. I know you in the back is far away, but please come on up and、um, let, let's have a conversation. All right. And with that, I'd like to introduce、um, our panelists. To my immediate left is Shin Sakane. Of Seven Dreamers. And Seven Dreamers makes the Laundroid, which is a laundry folding robot, which is actually even more complex and way cooler than it sounds. <laughs> and Shin invested in mixed teams way before it was cool.、Uh, he's been working on this laundry folding robot for over a decade, and he's been working with foreign talent from pretty close to the beginning. In the middle is Naomi Kurahara, the founder of InfoStellar, which I know, Naomi, I know you hate it when I describe it this way, but it's kind of Airbnb for satellites. <laughs> she's, a re- she's relatively new and is, has started with Japanese expertise and brought in foreign, foreign staff to help scale up. And on my far left is Jordan Fisher. Uh, CEO and founder of Zehitomo. And Jordan kind of came at it from the other direction, in that Zehitomo was a foreign founded company. The, the co founders were all foreign, and they had to reach out to Japanese staff to scale out. So let's give them a big, a big hand. And I'm going to sit down and I invite you to kind of gather around and listen in while we. Get started. And、um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm in danger of like rolling off the stage here.、Um, but actually, just to get started, 
let, let's talk about the, the mechanics of it all. Because there's been a lot of big Japanese companies that have announced that they're going to be all in English. Uh, Rakuten, Uniqlo has, has said so as well. But what do you do? Do you, uh, let, Shin, let's start with, with you. Do you okay. have an official language for the company? Do you have uh, languages divided by teams? Do you let people just communicate in whatever language they feel is best? How, how do you handle it? Well, we have basically no rule. Uh, people speak what they want to speak. So we have more Japanese than uh, foreign people, so most people speak in Japanese, but um, there are a lot of Japanese who speak English, and there are a um, you know, decent number of foreigners working in, in our lab and office, and we communicate with our subsidiary in Paris and you know, San Francisco, so you know, of course we speak English in, you know, in that case, so it's all mixed. Yeah. But do you have a problem with, um, so usually when, the, when a company has like people can speak any language they like, you end up with these small little uh, niches of these four or five foreigners who are, who are always hanging out with each other or this small team of Japanese sales staff who doesn't talk to the rest of the company. Have you have problems with that? Yes, we did. Okay. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so when that happens, uh, after one year, uh, the small team all quit. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So because then we, what we found is what's important is to have a kind of leader, a manager class who speak English. Well, basically English or Japanese or sometimes French, but we, I don't understand French. So, <laughs> so either English or Japanese. But the, what's important is to have a manager who speaks English and Japanese who could really, um, you know, inform like foreign people to what's really going on, what's important going on, and th th that is the key. I so the key is to have a, a manager that can really act as an effective bridge between the different cultures. That makes sense. Naomi, what what does InfoStellar do? Do you have a an official language for the company? Uh, right. So we our official language is English, and uh, our documentation is written in English, uh, including the technical documents and the contract documents. But the and also the meetings presentation will be done by uh, English. However, the uh, daily communications we use Japanese English mixed because we have still the Japanese and the non-Japanese uh, members. So. Well, now when did you decide, to, when and why did you decide to make that transition? Because you, your, your whole founding team is, is Japanese. So when, when did you make the decision like, okay, we're all, we're gonna start being an English language company from now? Right, so because of our business, the, our uh, customer is most of the, our customer is non-Japanese, and uh, of course the space business should be global. So we want, we have to create a global team, uh, and then the in the beginning the we were all three Japanese, but we uh, intentionally uh, got the non-Japanese as our initial members. So, so did you change to an English language company when you hired your first non-Japanese staff or before that? Right, yeah, I realized not having, uh, uh, having English-speaking people and use the English is something difficult and it's not <laughs> natural. <laughs> so. Yes, yes it is. Jordan, what about, what about you? How, how, what did Zehitomo do? Because you started out as, are you officially an English language company or? Yeah, so we're probably the opposite of uh, InfoCellar or Naomi's case, but we ended up with a similar structure. So we started off in English because as founders, we spoke English first, and so that made the most sense. Um, and right now, when we hire salespeople, if we make English the required language, and Zehitomo is a platform for local service professionals, so it's a, it's a pretty domestic market that we're going after, uh, and so our salespeople have very little need to speak English. Um, so if we make the required language for everything be English, then it sets a pretty high hurdle for, uh, for scaling out a sales organization, operations, and other facets. Um, that said, I, I think at Zehitomo we do a pretty good job of making sure the culture stays English. So even though we're speaking in Japanese with the sales team, uh, we use first names, 
Uh, we don't write Japanese business emails where like 90% of it is completely meaningless. All right. In our Slack channels, um, we use English for the official language and the official communication for anything written. But for anything verbal, uh, when Japanese team members are involved sales, then we speak in uh, then we speak in Japanese. So you're trying to maintain as much as the English language, the, the more of the Western startup culture yes, at the yes. company. And I think that's much more important. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned that about emails, because I find even, I, I mean, I've been in Japan for almost 25 years now, and I find even when I'm writing email to someone in San Francisco or London, yeah. I, I just, I feel like I have to start with some comment about the weather. <laughs> I, I just, it just feels wrong not to. <laughs> um, but it, it's particularly interesting because for me, all the companies I've started, and, I, and maybe it was feeling guilty, but as a foreigner in Japan, I always felt like I should make the extra effort to make a Japanese company and make all of the communication in Japanese. And, and it, it seems like now that kind of works against you when you try to go global. Yeah, so I think a lot of people that we want to work with I think we don't require English for the sales roles, but we want to make sure that people don't have what's called like English allergies, like ego allergy, right? And we want to make sure that they can work within the culture uh, and that they can also really work within a startup mindset, right? And so I'd also say that the majority of Japanese that we've worked with or that don't have ego allergy uh, are able to read and write in Japanese for simple stuff, right? So if our morning messages or kind of notes and stuff are written in English, they're pretty comfortable with actually handling that. but. Uh, when it comes to having a deep kind of detailed conversation or debate about how we should best modify our sales scripts, doing that in English is, uh, has very little meaning, I think. Okay, so company-wide meetings are in English or Japanese? When the sales team is included company-wide, it's, um, it's mixed. For any sales-related discussions, it's in Japanese. Okay. Naomi, what about InfoStellar? Like a company-wide meeting, is that in English and Jap or Japanese? English. English? Uh, yeah. Uh, we uh, assisting to the to use English uh, in the <laughs> in the technical uh, detailed discussion and also the uh, company strategy discussion also. So, Shin, I know Seven Dreamers is beyond the startup phase, but are do you do company wide me meetings bilingually or how do you handle it? No, mainly Japanese. The ninety ninety percent Japanese and ten percent in Eng in English. All right. Now, it's easy to when when it it's easy to talk about multilingual staff. Um, but what do you guys have any special procedures or processes to smooth onboarding, to make sure to manage expectations both of Japanese staff or English language staff that are are joining? Um, is there anything you do to to make it? to make sure they know what they're getting into. Um, Na Naomi, what about InfoStellar? Right, so the, I, uh, recently we, have, we, um, we got uh, American engineers uh, who were not living in Japan before uh, completely. So the, we were uh, talking long time, but the, during that period, I thought the many people who were not living in Japan, they have, have lack of information about the particular things about life in Japan. So the, I, we have to uh, explain the, yeah, like we have to remove such value um, feelings of anxiety. So, so yeah. is it, were they just looking for information about like how to rent an apartment or was it more just general anxiety about what it's like to work in Japan? Right, so we especially uh, talked about the visa processing, uh, visa process, and also the uh, like official language in company and uh, uh, how much English you can use in outside of company and also the um, like relocation how they can move, uh, those three parts, yeah, especially, yeah. So, so most of your international hires, have you hired them from Tokyo or have you recruited them from, from overseas and brought them here? Uh, we brought from abroad. Oh, okay. It's about different. Shin, I mean, you, you, bought, you started hiring foreign engineers a long time ago. Right, right. So the, uh, 
the hiring is really the key for the the uh, the company growth, right? So it's so important to hire like talents from you know, globally, and uh, especially like AI engineers, um, uh, like app UI UI UX engineers, software engineers are very very hard to find good ones in Japan. Yeah, and so we decided to kind of recruit for overseas, and especially in uh, Eastern Europe, there are many, many good engineers, and you know who actually want to work in Japan, especially in Tokyo. So all we needed to do is to just uh, issue a visa. <laughs> well, that that's the theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But but for all those engineers you were hiring. Um, Obviously, you're looking at their skills, but was there anything else you were looking at that said, okay, this person probably won't do well in Japan. This person might not adjust to Japan well. Are there, are, were there like other filters you had? Well, um, so, well, depending on, well, once we think this person is uh, in a high level engineer, we want to hire. Um, about like, if they can, they can be okay living in Japan or not. Um, most time, most of the time, it's fine. Just because um, the people, engineers who apply to Seven Dreamers, are big fan of Japan already. Like they like anime, manga, <laughs> you know, characters. So. Now, now, see to me, yeah. in my own experience, that's almost a danger sign. <laughs> so I, I found that. I mean, from my own experience, I found that the engineers that I've hired who have lasted the longest were the ones that that didn't have a special interest in Japan. Um, really? Yeah, the, the, I found the ones that really had a passion about, I don't know, anime or martial arts, they would get here and then after a year, they would be disillusioned. They, they would find out Japan wasn't what they thought and they'd be very depressed and want to go home. Oh, really? So you haven't found that? Yeah, well, no. So <laughs> maybe I it's think just we the people lucky. I attract. <laughs> I don't know. Probably. <laughs> That's you, maybe. <laughs> Um, Jordan, what, what do you do to kind of manage expectations and, and, and to make sure that everyone knows what they're getting into when they come into Zehitomo? Sure. So I think it's a really important question because hiring, you know, like Shin said, is one of the most important things that you can do as a company, right? Is to have the right talent on board, to have the right team in place to really push forward. Um, and I think that in addition to trying to find a right cultural fit, language is kind of another layer on top of that. That makes it an extra kind of dimension of, um, of, of potential challenge. And so what we do for everybody is we actually start off with a trial period. And people start off either as an intern, as a consultant, as a part-timer, um, and we try it out. And usually after a month, we can tell if it's a good cultural fit and if there's language or other problems that kind of come up in between. And I would say that, you know, we can try to explain how the culture is, make sure that people are being comfortable, you know, called by their first names, make sure that foreigners are comfortable taking off their shoes when they come into the office, right, you know, both ways. Um, but on top of that, I think really actually trying to work together uh, is, the, is the real final determinator. And so it's, um, you know, in case it isn't a good fit, um, then we can, you know, anyways, after kind of having seen that experience. But it's really good, it's important for us as a company to make sure that whoever's going to join the team is going to be able to really you know, be highly motivated and can be able to contribute a lot. And similarly for the person that would consider joining, that they have an experience of working with us and saying, hey, this is a team where I really can feel like I can, can give them my all, I can be really challenged and motivated and grow. Well, I, I can see that. I mean, the trial period is, is so important, I mean, for everyone, especially with Japanese labor law being so strict. Yes. Um, but, so, I mean, the things you mentioned, like taking off your shoes, and, and, and those, those seem like very superficial, simple things that, that everyone can do. But when you, when you talk about someone not being a cultural fit, what sort of misunderstandings or, or what sort of things make someone not a cultural fit in, in a multicultural company? Sure. So I think one of the most important things is a lot of, and I don't, I, I don't like to generalize, but you could say that you know, many Japanese that work at very domestic places kind of like the idea of working at a more international environment, right? Where it's not about the hours that you put in, but it's about the results that you produce, where it's, you know, you know not about seniority, but it's, you know, really having a chance and, you know, without that ceiling to make a difference. Um, but a lot of people who have that kind of that muscle memory of this is how it works for a long time, 
uh, when they come into another environment, even if they think that they want to work in an international environment, that then they'll kind of fall back on, well, I don't want to kind of go outside the bounds, but I'll just work longer to make up for it. Or So they, they sort of like the, the image of a yes, foreign yes, company. Yes, yes. But actually, that's kind of the opposite as, as what I was saying with Shin about the, foreigner, the foreigners coming to Japan because yeah. they love Japan. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess, a lot of Japanese yeah. think they would love the freedom of a of a foreign-style workplace, but once they experience it, it's not to their taste. And so I I think, you know, in some of the cases, it's really up to kind of management to make sure that they can fit in and they can know that, okay, it's it's okay to challenge something, right? Right, if we make decisions and, you know, if we're using my opinions and say I'm right half the time, right, the other half the time, if nobody says anything, there's going to be a, you know, it's a problem, right? And so, you know, I think saying that we want to use opinions, I think a lot of companies will have these great values that they put out but aren't actually followed, right? (laughs) And so... I think actually following those and actually, um, you know, that first time that you speak up in a meeting, right, we're full of Japanese or something, right? How do you actually get over that hurdle? And so I think, you know, I try to use a little bit of an internal gaijin power to just, you know, you know pull out the best in people. And, um, but that, that generally tends to be one of the, uh, the bigger challenges. Okay. Well, I think one of the, the situations we're sort of all in is that there is no, there's no blueprint. There's no rule book for for having multilingual multicultural teams i i think all four of us and a lot of you out there are still trying to figure it out and as everyone who's worked with startups knows you learn by making mistakes well hopefully you learn by looking at other people's mistakes but failing that you learn from your own and so looking back at all the things you've tried and pivoted and had to change what was the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it um shin so biggest mistake in which field like hiring um foreign people or or no i'd say (laughs) oh yeah no no, that's a much broader category but i'd say either in hiring or managing the the multilingual or multicultural staff yeah, well, actually, exactly as you mentioned, that, uh, well, we really don't care much about, you know, what kind of languages or where people come from. So not, we did not care too much about the people who did not speak Japanese at all. So I thought that uh, the people who speak both languages, you know, take care of them. And actually, they did. But that was not good enough. So, so a two or three group of, small group of, you know, the uh, uh, non-Japanese speaking engineers were always together mm. but I thought someone was really taking care of them <laughs> but you know uh, after a while like really they're like I realized that they're really lacking the uh, lacking information what's going on in the company so it wasn't just it wasn't just they were lacking kind of social connection they were lacking some of the information they needed to do their jobs Right, well, the the latter case. So, you know, in the startup, like every day, new information, new new things, new trouble, you know, uh, trouble, you know, solving. So they just cannot, couldn't keep up to date, you know, up to date. So after several months, they were so behind (laughs) in information. And I did not know. So what what was the solution? Did you just, was the solution just putting in like a formal process where the managers had to be responsible for making sure they had this information in, in both yeah, languages? Yeah, so I tried that. Um, I tried, um, you know, to put uh, one, you know, Japanese and English speaking uh, engineer to be really a, be a bridge of um, the team, but uh, that, that was kind of too late. After within probably six or seven months, everybody quit. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really bad. They are so smart engineers. I really didn't want to lose, but uh, we, we lost. Wow. But now, so as I mentioned that um, before, that now I realize that uh, we have to have a you know bilingual leader in at least like a manager or director position, so that you know th- these these guys get to know the the latest information in the company all the time. So then you know a lot of engineers or uh, even like sales and marketing people uh, really like enjoy well you know. Well, enjoy what company life basically actually that's a really interesting point because I think a lot of companies uh, particularly as they're growing there's this tendency to say <clears throat> we are primarily a foreign owned company and we're hiring Japanese sales and support staff or we are primarily a, a Japanese company but we need foreign engineering expertise 
and it, it sounds like in either case, you need to have not just the, the, the teams and the employees mixed, but the executive staff needs to be both um, Western and, or, or foreign and Japanese. Yeah, that's what I think, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, Jordan, what about you? What was the... You, you haven't had quite as long a time as Shin to make mistakes, <laughs> but <laughs> what, what's the biggest mistake you guys made, and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean, I, I partially answered this uh, with my last statement in terms of, you know, the, the, the cultural fit and just kind of making sure that, um, you know, people actually, you know, want to do what they say they want to do, um, and I think that's been a part of it, and I think tied to that um, is, you know, something I've learned at, you know, previous life experiences and stuff like that. I think lots of people talk about, you know, hire slow, fire fast. Uh, I think in our case, it's kind of hire fast, fire fast uh, is the matter. I mean, in terms of hiring fast, it's if it seems like there's a potential to be a good fit, um, we, we try it out, right? And if it's not going to work out, it's in nobody's best interest. And if you have somebody that's maybe not performing, it's, you know, it's, it's demotivating for the entire team. It's not good for them as an individual. Um, but when we have an all-star, we really just try to kind of convert as fast as possible. And I think that idea of hire fast and fire fast, it, it works, it resonates well with Western engineers and designers. Because yeah. uh, that really is, that, that's kind of like the whole startup idea. Yeah. Um, but have you found like Japanese staff to be less receptive to this because a lot of times I mean if you're if you're pulling someone out of you know yep. Oracle or IBM or pulling them out of another company mm-hmm. and you say six months later well five and a half months later yeah. say sorry it's not working out yep. I, I think a lot of Westerners are they get that yep. but I mean that that's doesn't that really come off as shocking to a lot of Japanese? Yeah, no, so I think after five and a half months, it's clearly not a good situation for anybody, right? And I think the ideal situation is we tried it out and it didn't work as a trial. And usually within a month, you can have pretty good conviction after working with a person directly. Um, and if we're not sure, maybe we'll extend it for another month or so. But um, yeah, no more than three months of any trial period uh, you'll have you'll have pretty good conviction of what's going to happen. I think there will still be cases where it's not going to work out, but I think it's going to be worse for the company overall. Um, if somebody who is not performing um, and is you know they're not they're clearly not motivated or they're having a hard time. If they're motivated, we can just try to change their role or change their position. Right, right, right. But if it's um, if it's if it's not a good environment, um, and I think we've been very fortunate in terms of the process that we've set up that we haven't really seen this again. We're still a very early age company, and I think our our team is full of uh, all stars right now. But I think the the whole process of um, of trying it out for both sides has been really healthy. Um, and if something else is on top of that, it's, it's in nobody's best interest for it to continue. So I think that's part of the, maybe a little bit of what comes with the Western mentality that we come with our, with our culture. But So was that something, was that a system you had from the very beginning? Or was that something that you kind of, uh, you learned along the way? I think that was from the beginning. So I've seen, okay. you know, in previous jobs and previous companies, um, <clears throat> in terms of the way things work, it's... Uh, it's in everybody's best interest for all the employees, for everybody to really be able to step up and do the best. Um, and I don't mean this in like a strict way. It's like, oh, somebody's so-so, we should, you know, by the way, I think that's, that's sending absolutely the wrong message, right? We try to empower everybody to give them all the chances they can to succeed. Um, but I just mean if there's clearly not a right cultural fit, <coughs> again, we're able to usually identify that uh, during the trial period. So even if we decide, meet somebody who's like, hey, let's, you know, start tomorrow, right? Let's try this out for a little right. bit. If it doesn't work, then we say, hey, maybe we can, you know, introduce you to this other company or this other fit, or maybe we want to try doing this. So I don't, um, I don't mean it like the kind of scary sense of like, oh, like everybody's, you know, head is on the line every single day. It's, uh, I think everybody has a lot of trust within, you know, the other members, and I think we've done a really good job on behalf of all the employees um, and kind of, you know, everybody in terms of kind of seeing to their kind of future, um, you know, goals uh, as as individuals and as a company, making sure that those are lined up. Okay. But. Um, yeah, it's really important that at the beginning, if, you know, I think one of the things that companies lock themselves into is if you hire without having any experience of working together, and after a month, you're like, eh, like maybe it wasn't the best fit, then it's very awkward, right? It's much harder conversation to have than if you started off as, hey, it's a trial, let's see if we can work well together or not. Makes sense. Naomi, what about you? You're, you've, what, what would you say it has been your biggest mistake in terms of managing multicultural teams and, and what did you learn from it? Um, unfortunately, I didn't have a big mistake yet. <laughs> not yet, yeah, anyway. Not it's okay. yet. That's good. It's coming. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but the, however, the one initial uh, earlier member left my uh, left company recently 
the, I think the, there should be several reasons, but one reason was uh, language. The, he, we, we knew the, he didn't speak English much, and uh, I think he had a bit of ego allergy. Okay. <laughs> However, the, we thought it okay, but the, it was not okay at the end, and it was really a uh, um, uh, big, big issue. The, it's easily I, he was easily isolated from the team, so the I we are now really um, how we can uh, make the everyone is happy to work and, and feeling uh, happy uh, in the company. The yeah, we are now di- discussing how we can achieve that. <laughs> well, I, I think that's really interesting because it was a. Um, unlike Shin's example where it was foreigners trying to operate in a Japanese company and feeling isolated, you had a, a Japanese staff in a Japanese company feeling isolated because everyone was trying to speak English. Have you had um, trouble recruiting Japanese staff because of that rule or have you had sta- people join expecting you know, kind of what Jordan was saying before that the image of an English language workforce sounded good but have you had staff join and then discover that wow I really do have to speak English and this is really hard <laughs> oh. the, the, uh, the, after hiring him the left, left one the, we uh, actually shifted to uh, prioritize the English speaking things. So uh-huh. we, we don't have much uh, issues for this moment. Okay. That's excellent. Um, let's see. I, th- I think I'm gonna, I've got time for just one more question, and then I'm going to open up to, for Q&A from the audience. And I'll, I'll give all of you a, a crack at the panel. <laughs> and... I guess what I want to ask is, so I, I mean, I've been in Japan a long time, and I've worked at big Japanese companies, I've worked at little Japanese startups, I've started my own, my own companies, and one of the things I've noticed that right now there is a real shortage of engineering talent and design talent, and I, I think that a lot of companies are being, well, let's say more flexible than they usually would in, in hiring. So they're, they're, I think a lot of companies are hiring because that's the only way they can fill the slots. And we all know business moves in cycles. You know, so right now business is good. Sometime in the future it's going to turn around and it's going to head back down. And I guess what I, what I want to ask you is, do you think this is a permanent change? Do you think that we're going to see... Um, Japanese companies continue to be more open to foreign staff or do you think that um, when the economic downturn comes it'll go back to normal um, Naomi what do you, what do you think the I think yes the Japan uh, should continue to look for foreign talent I think just because of the, the decreasing population it's it's simple. Okay. Yeah. That. So, so you think that in effect the the that uh, that lack of available talent is going to continue. All right. Jordan, what are your, your your thoughts? Yeah. So I think definitely. I think you know the number of foreigners in Japan is probably only going to increase unless something drastic changes. Um, I think that companies are more and more thinking about how they can be competitive globally. Um, and I think you know Naomi's point about the shrinking population, like. It's never been a better time to be a young Japanese person in, in Japan. You're going to have all the options you want in terms of uh, workplace, at least here domestically, compared to many years ago. Um, but I think the, the bigger challenge is really if, you know, foreigners in Japan, I don't hear many foreigners in Japan say, yes, I want to work at a Japanese corporate, right? That's my goal right now. And I think there is a lot of reasons for that. And I think companies are trying to change so they can be more accommodative of, you know, different, you know, styles and kind of more staff. Um, but you know, for companies to be competitive, I think they do need the diversity, um, okay. and I think that it will be a growing trend. But I think it's going to be, yeah, the, the 
corporates here are, are facing an uphill uh, an uphill challenge to an yeah. extent. Well, I think uh, to what you're saying, I think a lot of the a lot of the openness we're seeing towards startups has kind of spilled over into a, a flexibility and openness to working with foreign companies and, and foreign staff. And my sense is that it, it is something permanent has shifted, you know, at least a little bit. Um, Shin, you've been, you've been doing this the longest. What's, what's your take? Does this feel like a permanent shift to you? Well, yeah. Uh, in a way, yes. Um, Unless we have economic crisis like in, back in 2008, that time uh, we were not hiring any Japanese or foreigner. Or like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a really hard time. Um, but uh, except that kind of like you know occasion that uh, definitely we are uh, not just us, uh, all the Japanese companies like Miguel, like enterprises or startups will keep hiring foreigners because more and more um, demand for the communication with the global market and uh, definitely we are lacking um, in talents uh, not just engineers uh, sales and marketing global marketing digital marketing so yeah de definitely this movement is kind of permanent all right fantastic um well listen uh, let me let, let's give our panelists a a big round of applause and I'd like to open it up for, for questions from, from anyone. Yeah, do we have someone can get him a mic? Hi there. Uh, I was just wondering, um, as someone who has uh, a little bit of experience managing a team here in Japan, um, you know, in some sense, the traditional startup, uh, the, the image of a startup is in a unicultural setting. Uh, and I wanted to speak to the issue about work-life balance because it seems to me uh, when you're dealing with multicultural here, uh, you have on the one hand something like uh, Jordan's experience where uh, you know the Japanese staff might not be used to the culture. It's sort of an away game for them within the company. But then on the other hand, your foreign talent has sort of the same away game on the outside of the company. And in that sense, you know, a traditionally startup in a, a unicultural startup, the work-life balance might sort of be, be secondary because uh, you're kind of used to uh, the work-life balance being managed by the employee and the, the company not really having to foster it so much. Uh, do you find uh, and are you conscious of this being a, a sort of a challenge, an additional challenge uh, in a multicultural environment where you have to help foster the away game for Japanese talent who are working in a startup situation as well as foreign talent who are perhaps not used to uh, their environment outside of the company. So it's, it's, it's basically, do, does the, do Japanese and foreign staff have different expectations for a work-life balance and um, how do you manage that? Correct. I mean, right. uh, yeah, I, I feel like they do have expectation, different expectations for work-life balance. I'm just interested in the perspective of startups that have a multicultural uh, environment and whether they take the initiative to foster the additional complexity that's involved okay. in maintaining a work-life balance. Naomi, do you, do you, what does InfoSeller, do you guys do anything s special in that regard? Right, basically, I want to uh, in, uh, introduce the, how can I say in English, flex say? Flex time? <laughs> flex time. Uh, and also remote work, the homework. The, however, I thought it is. Uh, it depends on the phase of the startups. The very early phase, the when we are developing the initial service, the I cannot accept the remote work because the performance in the same team in one place is much uh, bigger than the uh, the remote team in the beginning phase, development phase. So I think the, it depends on the company phase, but in general, the once we achieve the like running phase, the I uh, I into, uh, I uh, I do the remote work, flexible time work. Yes. From from my own experience, um, when you're in the startup phase, it, it's sort of like okay, you're in a startup, you don't, you don't get to have a work-life balance. You're, you're, just, you're, you're really focused on whatever you're doing and I don't care what country you're from. Um, it seems to me like as a company gets bigger, the, once you get past that phase, you have a corporate culture 
that is the same for all employees, and it might lean one way or the other, but it seems like most companies make a choice one way or the other. Um, Chin, what, what's, what's been your experience on that? Well, like our expectation for employees, any employees for the work and life balance, like we, we, the same, same for Japanese and you know, the people from overseas. And I feel like whoever comes and they kind of get used to the uh, environment in the company. Well, Seven Dreamers has a very Japanese cultural feel to it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So the foreigners just sort of lean that direction and fit into the company court. Uh, I, I think so. Like, they used to it. They get used to it, <laughs> I think. Well, no, but there, there is really big differences. So, for example, a lot of foreigners have trouble with the whole idea of once a year there's a company retreat that everyone just takes a weekend and goes off together. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, we are actually um, very much Japanese uh, style startup, <laughs> but we really we're very flexible. Okay. So maybe that's why they they they, they don't mind. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's cool. Um, Jordan, you guys are kind of coming from the other direction, being very foreign flavored. But what did what's your take on it? Yeah. So I I completely agree with what you said about there's one corporate culture, and I think that you know people kind of tend to adapt to that, and that's part of the real cultural fit with the company, right? Um, you know, we do, inf you know, have a, a more Western approach to it. And I think the Japanese members that join our team like that approach, which is why they join us. Um, you know, in terms of work-life balance, we do, you know, we do quarterly kind of, you know, performance reviews and OKRs with everybody and make it clear to everybody that the number of hours you worked cannot come up in any of those conversations because that's not what's important. Um, and I think a lot of people will, you know, more Japanese will think, it's like, ah, well, maybe if I put in the extra hours and I show that I'm working hard and this, but if that comes up in the conversations, basically that's a, a, a non-starter. So really just trying to hammer home some of the more Western principles. Uh, per Naomi's point, like we did also have a bit more of a flex time. Like we don't have any fixed working hours. We don't have any fixed set of, you know, number of holidays. It's very much up to you to kind of, you know, hit your targets and, you know, really uh, help grow the team and be a, a player. But... Yeah, we did find that a little bit too much freedom was hard at the early stage. Uh, if everybody's working remotely or that day says, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be there. I'll be here, blah, blah, blah. So um, we do encourage coming to the office a bit more uh, within some teams. But that said, we are, like, functionally, we don't... Um, I, I hope we never get to a point where we're caring about how many days people are in and out of the office or hours and stuff yeah. like that. Okay. All right. Uh, other questions? Lots. Um, over here. Hi. Give that woman a mic. Hi, uh, my name is Cindy. Uh, I'm actually doing my master's degree here in um, Hitotsubashi University, doing public policy. So my question is, um, I want to sort of like redefine the meaning of like recruiting foreigners here because I think rather than enticing um, experienced like foreigners to actually relocate to Japan, work for your companies, I think the opportunities actually lie in the, in the number of like international students either doing their uh, masters in Japan, semongako, like learning Japanese, or actually doing their undergrad here in Japan. At the same time, in my personal experience, my own circle, those people either have not, never heard about startups or just completely rule it, rule it out. So they, their minds are set into like working for like the big Japanese co companies. So I want to hear your take on it individually if possible what do you think about um tapping into the fresh grads international fresh grads and do you have any ongoing strategy or do you plan to do something about these type of like very special demography thank you okay that's a really good question so when we're talking about oh okay great more time than we thought excellent um so we were talking about when, you, when you're talking about recruiting um, so we, all of us have talked about trying to recruit from overseas or pull people out of, of other companies. But in your experience, are you recruiting from university, uh, from universities and tapping into the international community there? And why or why not? Jordan? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, no, I think great question, and there definitely is, I, I see as well an increased number of international students attending startup-related events, kind of having that mindset, wanting to get involved. I think one of the challenges is that there's a lot of international students that don't speak Japanese, but also don't have, um, are looking for less technical jobs, right? Um, so, like, public policy or marketing and a lot of those areas. And I think for 
Um, a lot of the jobs that we look for, um, I guess, more at the entry level, um, well, I'd say for, for Japanese native speakers, we have a number of different jobs that we could, um, you know, within sales or operations or marketing or development. Um, on the English speaking side, uh, it's mostly on the product side, right? Uh, in terms of if you're a full stack JavaScript developer coming out of college, yes, we'd love you know do an internship and potentially convert. So I'd say um, I wish we could better use all the international talent in the universities. Um, if there was, and I think you know this may just be our company and in, in the fact that we're going after a pretty domestic market and that we need native Japanese for a handful of the less technical roles. But um, yeah, there's I see more and more startup events that are related to um, uh, to students with that background, and so I think. It's, uh, you know, we do really like new grads as well, um, and, but we just need them to either be Japanese or have a technical background. So, so have you hired uh, international students from university here? Um, so we're doing uh, internships with a few right now. I think it's a, it's a great way for interns to do kind of a long-term internship. Um, it, once they graduate, if it's a good fit, they can obviously come on full-time. Um, we've also taken a couple of students that have been um, not right when they graduated in April, because we haven't had that luxury of time, but um, people that had been doing more kind of freelancing or, or small other jobs at startups, um, and shortly after, like within a year, coming on board as well. Shin, what about you? Have you, have you recruited international engineering talent from the universities? or? Oh, yeah, definitely, yes. I also want to know how, how to get access to those like talents. Well, you, you two <laughs> need to talk maybe. after the panel. Let's right, right, okay, good. <laughs> that Naomi? Uh, this is all, uh, for my uh, Infosera's case. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough resources to educate uh, the young uh, students. So the, we need just we need the, like the good, skilled, experienced uh, uh, engineers or business person. So the for us, the unfortunately, we don't uh, have a good resource mm -hmm. to do so. And, and, and from my own experience, um, from the companies I've run in the past, my own companies, I've always found it challenging to hire from uh, the international students who are studying here uh, because a lot of them, uh, it, it, to, to what Jordan said, a lot of them don't speak fluent Japanese and a lot of them are not really clear what they want. And it's, um, so we... I've always tried to hire just people with a few years of experience. And I, I think that the larger the company is, the more willing they are to take on interns and be able to train them and to kind of take a long-term view. Um, but that's been my experience on it. Great. Another question. You had a question right there. Thank you. So other than access to global talent, clients and investors, are there any advantages to speaking in, in English at work? Oh, we said, like, you want to do... Yeah, that was, that was great. That was actually one of my backup okay. questions. That's a great question. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, like, what, investors overseas? No, are there any advantages, advantages to, to, speaking, advantages, speak, sorry. to speaking English at work? And other than just being able to recruit a bigger talent pool, are there any other advantages to having multilingual staff? Uh, more creative, different problem solving. Smarter? Smarter? <laughs> right. um, yeah, like a lot of advantages, I think. Um, um, well, in our case, uh, obviously, we want to expand globally. So, uh, you know, m more, more um, you know, like multi, like bilingual or like foreign like, language speakers are always welcome. That, that's one. But... Uh, uh, in terms, in terms of the culture thing, we we want to mix as much as we can. It's like all Japanese ojisan, old man culture is no good, right? So more women, more younger and elder people, and mix from you know the U.S., Asia, Europe. So it's all mix is always a good thing, I think. Yeah. Naomi, have you have you found advantages to having mixed teams other than just bigger po talent pool? Well, I, it's easier to go to global, definitely. The, if the business is only Japanese domestic, the, I don't think, uh, I don't know much the benefit, but the, if someone goes to global, the definitely English-speaking uh, uh, multicultural team is required. For example, um, we got often got the foreign uh, potential customers or investors, uh, partners, 
And then if they only see Japanese in the team and the people speak in Japanese all the time, they, I don't think it's good to make a relationship with them. So the, yeah, that, that's my answer. Okay. Jordan? Quickly, I, I completely agree on the culture point. I think that it's a um, diversity is not only kind of gender and age and stuff like that, but I think backgrounds as well. And if you're able to have people from a diverse background that can work towards a common goal, I think that's great. And I also just think it's a much more effective language for communicating and making decisions that are needed in a startup environment as opposed to the method of kind of you know, major consensus and kind of the, the more traditional Japanese ways of communicating. I think the communication style is mixed into culture and maybe I'm I'm, I'm banging this too much, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's something I think pretty, uh, pretty strongly. And um, yeah, it allows us to kind of use Gaijin power internally uh, to that extent. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an answer that's probably a little unpopular for this room. But I think when you're in the startup phase, like, and I mean, say, five people, six people or less, having a multicultural team is actually a negative. It, it does slow you down. Um, communication is slower. The you you sort of have to. Everyone has different styles. Um, there's a lot of things that, if it was everyone's coming from the same culture, can be left unsaid that you have to say. But once the team gets 15, 20, or or more, there really does seem to be a solid advantage to having having that diversity of opinion um, and at that point I think the difference is when you have like a management structure you already have that built-in inefficiency and and having that extra creativity forcing the managers to think differently and be flexible can add to the the value of a company um, but I think early on, when you're just a few people, having a multicultural team actually makes things a bit harder. Cool. Next question. Yes. So, in terms of communication, besides besides the language, do do you do something differently to uh, communicate streamlessly to communicate streamlessly with all the multicultural people? Do you do something different other than language? My, my experience was trying to simplify the language as, as simple as possible or trying to kind of present the, with more visual um, images. What, what, what kind of... Um, so, so do you mean do, we, do people treat... Do they have different processes for people from different cultures? Do they treat people differently or do they have special processes to... Does, does your company have a special communication process or uh, working method to communicate between all the multicultural people. Oh, okay. People. Shin, I think you're, you're uh, the one to talk about this. Yeah, uh, actually we don't have any trick. <laughs> uh, when the English-speaking employee make presentations, they make in English and Japanese people need to understand, right? So they, you know, gradually pick up um, the uh, English slides and the other way around. So we, we really don't have any rule or trick. Well, but before you were mentioning that, that you make it explicitly part of the manager's job that they have to get the communication done. Oh, yeah, done yeah, yeah. Well, that, that is uh, more of the uh, uh, each person's, uh, how, how should I say? Uh, for example, like, uh, I really don't care what to, what to speak in the company, right? So people see me. You know, okay, I speak English, you know, here, and then we'll speak Japanese here. So people start to get, kind of, start to get mixed, kind okay. of. So more, more director or managers uh, do the same thing um, that people follow. So, for example, when I'm in the meeting, when, when someone is start to make presentation in Japanese, I kind of translate. So the more and more people start to do this. So that's why I, I'm, I'm saying like that the people, executives, should be um, bilingual more and more. Okay. Um, I've, we've got time for, I think, just one more question. So who, who has a burning question they have to ask? In the back, in the, in the vest. Nope, that's you. Thank you. Um, my name is Robert. I'm... Uh, 
master's student in um, uh, machine learning. And uh, my question is uh, to uh, all the panelists, though I think uh, Mr. Fisher and uh, Mr. Sakani could be more uh, fit, uh, and maybe Mr. Romero. Um, the startup scene on a global perspective and the startup scene on a Japanese perspective, what are the differences that you have picked and what are the similarities that maybe uh, have helped you find the best momentum to, uh, to, to navigate into Japan? It's a great question. Uh, Jordan, why don't, you, why don't you take that one first? What's the, the big differences or the important differences between the startup cultures in, in the West and in Japan? Um, so I think one of the biggest hints is in the question itself. What are the biggest differences is in the culture? And I think that um, that's one of the reasons that we try to take a more Western cultural approach to what we're doing in Japan. I think that obviously, um, depending on your culture, I think your approaches are going to be different. But I think the biggest difference is actually the environment. So in the Valley or in more kind of mature startup ecosystems, you obviously have a lot more talent that are experienced in startups, right? Um, you have a lot more uh, you know, funding flowing around. You have a lot more people that are then moving, you know, you know, just lots of opportunities purely within the startup sector. But in Tokyo, you have less people that have experienced the startup ride. Um, you have you know, less maybe entrepreneur investors, right? You have more salarymen VCs here. Um, and so I think the environment is quite different. And I would say I was in you know, California over 10 years ago in college. And you know, as a comp sci major, all of my friends graduated went to Silicon Valley. So I remember you know, kind of seeing and feeling that rise um, you know, when I was there you know, over the last you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I, I get a little bit of that feeling here in Japan now. So it's not clearly the same scale or the same momentum. Um, but I think we are moving in a similar trajectory um, overall. And so I think that it will take time for the environment to catch up. But when the environment is not the same, then it becomes that much harder to attract talent, to attract funding, to do a lot of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, the wind is, in our, I think, at our back in Tokyo uh, for doing startups here. Uh, and things, I think, will only get better um, and easier as we have more talent and we have more kind of experienced startup minds uh, flowing around in the in the space here, but uh, to me the environment is the biggest differentiator. And in terms of the cultural differences, it just depends on how you apply that culture. Naomi, you're you're pretty active in the the startup scene both here in here in Japan, and you're dealing with a lot of startups in the West too. So what what's what what do you think are the most important differences, and why why do they matter? I think the like. I compare U.S. and Japan, and uh, I see the top brilliant talent in U.S. goes to startups. But the, in Tokyo, the someone from University of Tokyo or, or Kyoto University go to big company or consulting company, banking company. So I think that is a big difference, and uh, I think uh, that should be changed. So you think that that talent is more top talent in the West wants to go to startups and top talent in Japan, you have to pull very hard to get them into your startup. Yeah, I've seen that too. Shin? Yeah, uh, the environment in uh, Japanese startup um, field is really, really um, getting better and better. Uh, it's probably, it's, the scales are smaller, number of startups are smaller, but the environment is pretty much as good as what's in Silicon Valley, I believe. But the only difference in the startups, uh, for example, in the, in the U.S. and Japan, are the U.S. startups see global market from the beginning. But Japanese startups, uh, a lot of them still see domestic market only at the beginning. When, then when they get really succeeded, then they go ab abroad. So that's the only difference, I think. That's true. And my take on it, it's um, if you listen to the Disrupting Japan podcast, the, the differences between the, the global markets and the Japanese startup market it's something I talk about a lot, and it's something I get asked a lot. And so, I mean, I, I could give you a two-hour answer to that question, but it wouldn't answer what I think the, the, the real question you're asking is. Um, and for all the differences from startups, whether you're looking at in San Francisco or Berlin and Tokyo, there are a ton of differences, but in... The similarity is most important. The most difficult thing for any startup, no matter where you are, is 
building up a customer base, creating value that customers want, and being able to deliver that. And that similarity <laughs> is universal. And you can take a startup founder from Senegal or London or Tokyo or San Francisco, and they will have more in common with each other than they would from an executive at a large corporation anywhere in the world. So in many ways, I think the similarities are much stronger and more important than any difference. Um, it seems like our time is up. Uh, I want to thank 500 startups for inviting us and putting on this event, and let's give our panel a huge round of applause. And we're back. You know, there are no real rules or best practices for working with multinational and multicultural teams, especially at startups. I mean, once a company becomes big enough, then the corporate culture becomes so much stronger than the individual's or even the national culture that the employees bring to work with them. But for startups? Well, we are all breaking new ground here, and we're trying to figure things out together. We'll definitely be having more events like this in the future, and if you want to make sure you get an invitation, drop by the Disrupting Japan site and sign up on the announcement list. There's going to be a lot more good stuff coming. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.